chapter 5, verse 1. Now we come to the parable of the vineyard. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Wait a minute, are we back in the Song of Songs? I mean, the song starts out and you almost can hear the, you know, the orchestra swell and, the, and the, the flowers are blooming and the sun is coming out and all of a sudden a dark cloud comes over the top because, gang, this song is a lament. Verse 2. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine, and He built a tower in the middle of it. That would be Jerusalem. He also hewed out a wine vat in it And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. Indeed, Jesus said Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles were completed. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. And I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the house of the Lord of hosts is, if anyone was wondering, is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. This beautiful and tragic elegy for all of Israel and Judah, as verse 7 clearly reveals, the song of the vineyard. And the picture of the vineyard was perfect. Isaiah is, you know, second, I think, only to Jesus. Masterful in his parables. Masterful in the use of his words as a prophet in what he says. Now, we did a study on Psalm 80 last year. In fact, it was this time last year called the Psalm of the Vineyard. Because Psalm 80 is also a psalm of the vineyard. Israel, Judah, pictured as a vineyard of the Lord. And at that time, we referenced Isaiah chapter 5, Psalm of the Vineyard, here. Asaph wrote Psalm 80, Isaiah, Psalm, or Isaiah chapter 5, and their companion songs. And by the way, just a side note, Psalm 80 verses uh, 4 and 19 name the Lord Adonai Yahweh Sabah, the Lord God of hosts. He is the judge in Psalm 80, he is the judge in the vineyard song of Isaiah chapter 5. He uses the same name. But why a vineyard? Why, in talking about the tragedy, does God choose a vineyard to speak to His people Israel? I'll let Victor Buxfazen answer that question. He said, In the days of Isaiah, the stony hills of Judea were beautifully terraced and planted with choice and delightful vineyards. Every citizen of Judah was well acquainted with these lovely vineyards which produced luscious grapes. He knew how much toil, care, and love went into the making of one of these vineyards and how much hope the hard-working husbandmen invested in it. Every Judean could easily understand the frustration and the heartache of the owner of the vineyard. 
When a man puts all that energy and effort and work and toil into planting a vineyard and it produces rotten grapes, it's heartbreaking and disappointing. Does God get disappointed? I mean, He's God. He knew the vineyard was going to produce bad grapes. And yet, does, does He get disappointed anyway? Does God get frustrated? Did He really experience heartache at Israel's rebellion? At ours? The Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So it is obviously possible for us to grieve the Lord. It is possible for us to frustrate God. It is possible for God, yes, in fact, to be disappointed. Just because God is holy doesn't mean that He's not able to feel. Just because He's unique in all eternity, omniscient and omnipotent, omnipresent, it doesn't mean that God is unfeeling. And and when we distance God by His holiness, we forget we're made in His image. Where do you think things like passion come from? Where do you think our emotions originated? Where do you think anger, disappointment, heartbreak, jealousy? Where do you think these things began? Not in the heart of man. They began in the heart of God. God says, I am a jealous God. I am jealous for my people. His heart breaks. Some of you know this, but medically speaking, doctors believe that when Jesus died on the cross, what literally killed Him physically was His heart burst. He died of a broken heart. Because God does feel, and God does ache, and God does hurt, and His heart breaks over His people Israel. Yes, He knew they were going to sin. Just like He knew when He planted the tree in the garden, Adam and Eve were going to choose that tree. He knew. doesn't make it any easier for God. It still hurts the Father. And when I sin, it still hurts the Father. Breaks His heart. But Jesus takes this parable of the vineyard and He expands on it. From Psalm 80 to Isaiah 5, all the way to Matthew 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable, He says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Sound familiar? Jesus is directly quoting Isaiah chapter 5. And Jesus goes on, and He rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So the leaders of Israel are standing around and they hear Jesus telling this parable and they go, oh, He's doing Isaiah. This is a good one. Come on, guys. The vineyard. I got it. I know what you're saying. But Jesus goes further. When the harvest time approached, He sent His slaves to the vine growers to receive His produce. Oh, that's new. Isaiah didn't say that. Hmm. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. I haven't heard this before. Who are these slaves that he sent? Well, we know the prophets. Isaiah being one of them. He sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw his son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? Now, these leaders of Israel at the time, 
the, the Jewish priests and scribes and Pharisees were standing there. They obviously are back on their heels a bit because they're not really thinking and they're not quite putting two and two together. And Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do when he comes? And they say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he'll rent out the vine grower to other vine growers or the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper time. And Jesus said to them, did you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And it's marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting Psalm 118. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Shock. I mean, an immediate slap in the face as they realize they are the ones who cast out. They are the ones who would kill the Son. And it's a shocking re-singing of an old song. The song of the vineyard is a millennial lament. Why a millennial lament? Because the Lord's plan has always been to give the kingdom to Israel. It was from the very beginning. As David rose to the throne, I'm going to set one of your descendants on this throne. And he's going to rule and reign from there. And Israel will will be a great nation. And all the world will stream into it. We read that last Sunday, Isaiah chapter 2. And it's going to be marvelous. The kingdom, it is your kingdom. But it's a song of lament because the kingdom would have to wait. Because the people had no faith for it. Now, if if we knew Hebrew, uh, we'd see more poignancy here than we can see in the English. But let me just give you two quick examples out of verse 7, where Isaiah says, He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. There are word plays going on all over this song. Here, when he says justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. Mishpat. He looked for mishpat, but he found bloodshed. Mishpat. So it's a word play. Just changing the end of the word. He looked for righteousness. Sadaka. But instead got a cry or a scream of anguish. Sayaka. And he plays back and forth on these words. His, his use of language is masterful and intricate. But it shows, it reveals the emotion and the pain of, listen, the pain of the Lord that is surging beneath this song. We read it as the song of the vineyard. Things didn't go so well, rotten grapes, so we had to tear down the vineyard. Oh well. God sings it with an aching, broken, painful heart. This hurts Him deeply. And so it's no surprise that the song of the vineyard would be followed by six woes through the rest of the chapter. Watch these quickly. Woe number one, the misery of materialism. Verse 8. The misery of materialism. And here's where we begin to see a little bit of America emerge as well. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. Wow! If that doesn't fit exactly what's happening in our country today. How many great, beautiful houses were built in the last several years and are empty and desolate right now? 
For ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath or ten gallons or so of wine, and a homer of seed will yield an ephah of grain. In other words, not much. So it's the first woe, the misery of materialism. For all your greed, Isaiah says, your capitalistic expansion, your houses will be left empty to you. Remember what Jesus said? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Matthew 23, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, listen, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. The first woe, the misery of materialism. Second woe, the hellishness of hedonism. The hellishness of hedonism. Woe to those, verse 11, who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute and by wine, but they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands. Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude is parched with thirst. This second woe is aimed at those whose life ambition is to have a good time. And it, you remember Dead Poets Society? How many of you saw that movie? Robin Williams, Dead Poets Society. And the whole idea was to suck the marrow out of life. You know? And it was elevated. That movie, and it's a really interesting and You know, great drama, well acted, amazing story. But that movie lifted the whole idea of hedonism to a new level and tried to honor it. Get everything you can on this go around. Take it all. This is what this life is for. And it's hedonism. And it's hellish. And it's a problem in Israel In Isaiah's day, and the reason I call it hellish is verse 14, Therefore Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure, and Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend. Now the translators added into it, that's implied, but it's almost more profound just to read it. Jerusalem's splendor and all of this going on is descending It's going down. This stuff is going to hell. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. What is he describing? Steps on a staircase that go down. It's a spiral down. And what he says there in that woe, in the hellishness of hedonism, is he said, You've already begun your descent. You're already going to hell. It's not that you will go to hell later, you're on your way right now. You're marching down. And again, this is not that God doesn't want enjoyment for people. But there's a huge difference between hedonistic empty pleasure and spirit-filled joy. That's what God wants. That we be filled with the joy of the Spirit and of fellowship. The kind of of laughter that I don't believe anyone can have as, as good as Christians. 
the gut laugh of a Christian because theirs is coming from a true place of joy as opposed to some kind of sick joke. Verse 15, going on. So the common man will be humbled. Here's that theme. And the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud will also be abased. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. And the holy God will show Himself holy in righteousness. Be encouraged, my friends. For all the stuff that we see going on and all the discouragement and disappointment of how sick culture around us can get, the holy God will display His righteousness. He will be seen holy. And we will be in awe in that day. Then the lambs will graze as in their pasture, and the strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. And that brings us to the third woe, the egregiousness of exhibitionism. The egregiousness of exhibitionism. Materialism, hedonism, and now exhibitionism. Watch this, verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes who say, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel, Gadosh Israel, draw near and come to pass that we may know it. That's unbelievable, gang. The reason I use the word egregious here is this kind of exhibitionist attitude. These are those who stupidly and arrogantly flaunt sin as a challenge to God. Well, let's see God come. Bring it on. This is those who live in absolute, bold-faced defiance of the Lord. This is the Jerusalem Gay Pride Parade. Of all the places on planet Earth where that could take place. And it's even said in Israel that Tel Aviv is secular Israel and Jerusalem is spiritual Israel. Bad enough that they would hold a parade like that in Tel Aviv. But that it's in the very heart, in the city of God, is total flaunting. And this is what Isaiah is prophesying against. The next woe. Actually, hold on for a second. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Those of you who say, bring it on! The Jewish tour guide who said to me, and this is often said by Jews who are, who are not wanting to believe in Jesus as Messiah, but the Jewish tour guide, his name was uh, David, first time I went to Israel, and we were asking him what he believed, and he said, Well, I believe if Jesus is the Messiah, when he comes back the second time, I'll say, Is this your second visit? Oh, 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 oh. You don't want to wait. You do not want to ask him, Is this your second visit? Peter said, Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. You know what? Sin is obviously having its fullest effect when people are mocking the Lord. When it gets to mocking, it doesn't start with mocking. Sin normally starts with hiding, doesn't it? Being surreptitious. Getting away with it. But it evolves into that place where you're just mocking God with it. Whatever. Bring it on. I think of those who spat on Jesus at the cross saying, if you're the Son of God, come down from there. What if He had? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine if he went, all right, pop, pop, kick. What's the problem? You want to have a conversation? What if he called 10,000 angels, 12,000 angels? 
What if he just did it all right then and there? I'll tell you what, if he did, we would be lost for eternity. And so the only thing that held him back on the cross was his love and mercy for you and for me. Fourth woe, the woe or the the ruin of relativism. Relativism. Are you seeing these things as in play today? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's one of the greatest deceptions in our country, in our world today. You have your truth, I have mine. This is not a new lie, gang. But our world flips everything now upside down and turns it around and makes it relative. And Proverbs 17.15 tells us, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. Relativism. The time has come to choose up sides and not to call dark light and light dark but to call truth what it is. This is light. This is darkness. Make your choice. Jesus said to Laodicea, I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. But because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Choose up sides. Make your choice. Revelation 22.11 Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. But it's the ruin of relativism. Fifth woe. Hang with me. We're almost done. I've got to move. Fifth woe. The end of elitism. The end of elitism. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. We're talking about the elites. You know what's reality? The better we see God in His holiness, the more aware we are of the Holy One of Israel, the more we realize how utterly foolish we are. How absolutely silly any prideful humanity is. When we get into the presence and recognize His greatness, we just go, I am an idiot by comparison. To even think I had anything worth standing up and going, Oh, look at me! Not even close. Paul said, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Will prideful elitism will be the end of every man who buys into it. The sixth woe and the final woe, we just call it the abuse of alcoholism. Verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Gang, listen. It's not just alcoholism or drinking that he's talking about. He makes the same exact connection that King Lemuel's mother made in Proverbs 31. You know what that connection is? It's leaders drinking. Not drinking leaders. It's could be. L-I-T-E-R. Leaders. Those in authority. Those who rule. Those who are overseeing. Those now drinking. Proverbs 31, verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. They'll drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And that's what he's talking about. Look at it again. 
Woe to those who are heroes in drinking, valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Who can take away people's rights? Leaders. Those who are in charge. Leadership and alcohol don't mix. (laughs) Because alcoholism doesn't just abuse the drinker, it abuses people around the drinker. That's the problem. Oh, I can handle it. Yeah, but can they? Can she? Can he? It mars a leader's ability to clearly lead. Be it a king, or a ruler, or a boss, or a husband, or a father, or a mother. Drinking mars your ability to lead clearly. Now, in these six woes, Isaiah details all of the abuse and ruin and misery that these behaviors bring on themselves. It's not chastisement, it's consequence. All of these woes, he's saying, woe to you for all these behaviors because the behaviors, the consequence of these behaviors, the product of the choices is coming back on you. Just as James says in James 1.14, each one when he is tempted is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's what sin does. We're not even to God's judgment Himself. This is all their own behavior coming back on them, and that's why He's crying out, He's pleading in these woes. Woe are you! If you're doing these things, if you're living this lifestyle, if you're an, uh, if you're an Israelite... Man, it's just stunning to me. Every single one of these woes are right in line with this country here and now, today. Every one of them. And they're all the results of living for now rather than living for what is to come. Which, gang, listen again. This is why the kingdom is so important. This is why knowing about the kingdom and being aware of the kingdom and when it's coming and what it looks like is so critical to God. This is why He keeps bringing it up so that our eyes would be looking to then... Not to what we get now. We say, I'm living for the kingdom. I'm aware of it. I read Isaiah chapter one, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and I just go, yes, that's what I want. The last several chapters of Isaiah, read it and go, yes, that's what I The kingdom, that's worth living for. Even if it's difficult now, I'm living for then. But if we have no sense of the kingdom, we start to live for now. We start to settle into now. For all these woeful behaviors, something worse is coming. Verse 24, Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, as dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of Gadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel. This warning should have rocked Israel to its, to its rotting core. His hand of judgment, we're told, is still outstretched. On account of the anger of the Lord, verse 25, has burned against His people. He stretched out His hand against them, struck them down. The mountains quaked. Their corpses lay like refuge in the, refuse in the middle of the streets. For all His anger is, listen, is not spent. His hand is still outstretched. There's more to come. And He's about to take hold of a foreign entity as a weapon, as an instrument of His anger. Verse 26, He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation. 
and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth, and behold, it will come with speed, swiftly. That is this instrument of God's anger. No one in it is weary or stumbled, stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Nor is the belt at its waist undone. Nor is its sandal strap broken. That means here comes an army and their shoes are in great shape and they are not tired and they are coming on strong and coming on hard and coming on fast. And its arrows are sharp, verse 28, and its bows are all bent. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint, sparking as they gallop. Its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. And this is an immediate and a horrifying warning of invasion. All these woes, you're miserable because of them, but that's not the worst of it. God is about to bring foreign armies in for a massive onslaught in Israel. Now, in that day, this warning in chapter 5 probably is not what you think. I originally thought Babylon. It's not. It's probably Egypt and Assyria first. Because this is early in Isaiah's ministry. It's before the downfall of northern, the northern kingdom. Isaiah 7 verse 18 says, In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. So the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy is probably Egypt and Assyria coming and smacking on Judah and beating them down and drawing out people in constant battle. Isaiah the prophet himself would be dead nearly a century before Babylon came on, which will be significant later in his prophecy. Israel would deal with Egypt, would deal with Assyria, would then have Babylon come on, take them into captivity. After Babylon, even when they go back into the land, they have to deal with Persia. After Persia, they would have to deal with Greece, and then Greece splits up into four nations, and it begins to war and battle with Egypt and other countries. And Israel's right in the middle of all of this, getting pummeled right and left, until finally, iron-toothed Rome comes along and eats them up and spits them out. So this prophecy had an immediate application, but it would roll on and on and on. And it's heavy stuff. And we needed to get through it all tonight, and I know we've gone long. Thank you for your patience. But we needed to go through all of this, because Isaiah did. In fact, he didn't do just chapter 3, 4, and 5. He did 2, 3, 4, and 5. He did the whole thing and laid it out. Yeah, but he didn't have your long-winded commentary, Rick. I understand that. But you could call this whole thing the woe of the vineyard. Woe for the vineyard. The Lord established the vineyard. He nurtured it. He tended Israel. But when He came to the vineyard looking for its fruit, well, you know what happened. All He found was great disappointment. Now listen, I have one last thing to say. What about now? We know what happened historically. We see the application of the prophecy in Israel, so we're completely aware of that. It makes sense. It landed. What about now? These things that happened to them, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, were written for us so that in these last days we would know how to live. What about now? God plants expecting good fruit. He plants 
looking for sweet, tasty grapes on the vine. What's he going to find? What will he find? Now I want to leave you with good news. And the good news is this. My friends, we are, each and every one of us, incapable in ourselves of producing the fruit that God's looking for. We can't do it. We can't. Not a one of us. Not all the Billy Grahams and Mother Teresas in the world. People who give their lives to great acts of service. None of them could in and of themselves produce the fruit that God is looking for. We don't grow by our own character and strength. You know this. Jesus is the vine. He's the vine. This is marvelous because in all these parables of the vineyard, we see the vineyard, it just doesn't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. God provides for it, He tends it, He gives it everything that is necessary, and it doesn't grow good fruit. But where Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches, we bear, well, I let, let Him say it, I am the true vine, He says, John 15. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may may bear more fruit. Are are you being pruned right now? Some of you probably are. You're facing some difficulty, some struggle. Oh, that hurt. But God is preparing. He's pruning. He's tending. He's growing and nurturing. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, why does He say that right there? Because even though pruning is going on, you're still holy. Even though you go through tough times in your life, you're already clean by the blood of Jesus. It's not about your salvation. It's about your sanctification. And He's cleaning and pruning. And Verse 3, verse 4, Abide in Me, He says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Praise the Lord. Amen. He is the true vine. Let's bow. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it's it's hard, it's heavy. We know what Israel has gone through. Father, some of us have made similar choices in our lives, in our past, and gone through things we wish we had never dealt with. But Lord, You have made clean all those who call upon the name of Jesus. Now, Father, connect us. Help us to stay rooted in the vine, the true vine of Jesus Christ. Lord, prune in my life, prune in our lives anything You need to to get out of the way. The dead growth, the stuff that's not producing, prune it away that we might, for You, Lord, and because of You, bear much fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Sunday, Isaiah 7.14. Read it. Think about it. That's where we'll be. We'll do six next Wednesday night.